are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right. Thank you, Sherry. Well, Sherry is one of our retired educators, and so this fall feels a little bit different, doesn't it, Sherry? Footloose and fancy free after 25 years. That's good. Well, I don't know what subjects you maybe mentioned around the table. I would be a history and literature person. But, you know, anything is possible. So later in college, I refound my love for math and science. So I don't know what you mentioned around the table. But I would guess between all of us, we covered everything. That's one of the wonderful things about our differences and how we complement each other. So here we are settling into this new school year. Hopefully you found your routine You know where your classes are, parents, you've got the schedules flowing between work and family life. And here at the Y Church, we're studying the second half of Romans in a series called How to Be the People of God. The first half was earlier this year, and then our theme was how to be a child of God. And it was all about what God has done for us, that though our life was a mess And we were lost and condemned without him. God had mercy on us. And Paul said in Romans 6, in our first study earlier in the year, for the wages of sin is death. That's where we were. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The whole first half, he gave us the gift of his son so that we can trust him, we can trust Jesus as our Savior, and become children of God. And now what that means is there's tremendous implications for how we get to live from here on out. Now that I'm a child of God, now that I've received this gift, what does that mean for how I live, for my life? If God loved me and rescued me, what does this new identity mean? How is my life transformed? And that's how we get to Romans 12, what we picked up today. We started it last week where Paul says in the opening verse, so before our reading today in verse 1, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, 
So in light of Romans 1 to 11, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So this is Paul saying to us, here's our posture. Here I am, God. You've given me everything. And now my life is yours. And then verse 2 we covered last week. And be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve what God's will is. And so here's how we summed it up last week. Give your whole life over to God. Let God change you and use you for His grand design. And this is really the umbrella over chapters 12 to 15. So when we get to this passage today, this truth is being spelled out. If I'm giving my whole life over to God, if my mind, that means my thoughts and perceptions, are being transformed so I can do what God desires, then here's what that looks like. Verse 9 and the passage that Sherry just read for us. So that's why Paul lands on this list of imperatives. Here's what the renewing of the mind is going to look like. And he sketches it out in rapid succession. I want you to keep two things in mind as we look at this passage. First, that the imperatives, these commands of Romans, are not some spiritual to-do list that you can just pluck out of thin air. If you try to do these things without them flowing out of the mercy of God, chapters 1 through 11, you're never going to pull it off. This is not a list whereby we earn God's favor or score points with him. It is simply, when we get to 12 here, a response of a grateful heart for a great and awesome God. Secondly, the second thing I'll point out and then we'll get going is the imperatives in this passage are going to come fast and furious, just one after another. And a lot of passages in Romans, we can trace this complex thought and outline the passage. We see how each verse is connected to the next one. And it's going to be a different style today. It reminds me of when I came home from work on Friday, my wife had left for women's retreat up north at Chaminade. And I found a note on the table that said things like, Love you guys. Have a great time. Remember, there's leftover pizza in the fridge, and the salad needs to be eaten. Eat that last avocado that's ripe. Liana and Amaya are going to cook supper tomorrow, and Lennox needs a shower. Right? Right down the list. Paul is giving this list of instructions to his church family in Rome. So it comes rapid fire, and it's just listed out in the text. There are connections. We're going to see those but it is not in a complex outline this morning. And our plan is to just work through these verses, sometimes more detail, sometimes less because of the time. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. It's perfect, too, as we have our high school and confirmation students with us this morning. I pass these out as they arrive. We call this our message moment. So if some of you have, like, Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist background, you know, confirmation, and you'd have these. I had this long sheet we had to fill out every Sunday of sermon notes. Here's our half sheet, our little version of it here. And I've asked them to just write down one takeaway from the message this morning. And I want to give us all this assignment because we're going to have all these verses that come pretty fast and furious. What is the one thing that God really settles on your heart this morning for all of us? And I just encourage you to circle that 
in our study this morning and take that home with you. So let's look at this passage together. Verse 9 is the theme verse of the whole passage. So there's not much structure, but this is the lead verse that holds it all together. And here it is. Love must be sincere. In Minnesota, we have this little descriptor called Minnesota nice. And it's a stereotype that says that we are a people who are courteous and mild-mannered. And here it is, passive-aggressive. And that last one is the zinger. A kind of passive hostility. A covert aggression that avoids direct communication. In other words, Minnesota nice is the opposite of what Paul is saying right here in this passage. He says love must be sincere. It should be genuine. Not put on for show. And the actual word there means not sincere, but literally it says without hypocrisy. And some of you might remember this word, that it's a word in Greek that has to do with the theater. So a hypocrite, 2,000 years ago when they used this word, meant this was an actor on the stage. This is someone who is pretending they're someone else. They're putting on a performance. But Paul says we can't do that when it comes to love. As followers of Christ, it has to be the real deal through and through. And everything in this passage now flows from that thought. So Paul says in the second half of verse 9, he says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And why is that? Because that's what love looks like. And look at how vivid those verbs are. Sometimes we might feel like, you know, we're just kind of ho-hum about evil in the world, you know, especially just inundated by the news and what's going on in the world. And yet, God says that this is no exaggeration. God speaks of evil in the world and says we should actually hate it. It's a rare and strong word. When my mom was raising us growing up, we weren't allowed to use the word hate because I can hear her voice. Hate is a strong word. And yet here... It's the one spot where hate is allowed. And not just allowed, but it's commended. And its opposite is just as strong, just as vivid. Paul says, cling to what is good. My son, when he first came home, he was three and a half years old, came home via adoption. And if he saw a dog, and we were outside, I mean, he just lost his mind and he was up in my arms as fast as could be, just like a jackrabbit, clinging to me, trembling and hanging on for dear life. Paul says, cling to what is good. Then in verse 10, he says more about what sincere love looks like. We're going to keep following this theme. Be devoted to one another in love. And what it actually says there is in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love gets its name from that Greek word. Somebody should tell their football fans about that. Be devoted to one another in love. In Philadelphia. We said last week that one of the dominant metaphors in the New Testament is that the church, us together, is like a family. Not related by blood, but united by Christ who has knit us together as brothers and sisters. And Paul's saying there is 
an affection that should be present here among the people of God. Paul says, second half of the verse, honor one another above yourselves. And I want you to think how striking this would have been in a Roman context where in the church you would have had slaves and slave masters sitting side by side. Honor one another above yourselves. And think about how this fell on the ears of the men in Rome sitting in church who are being told to honor the women above themselves. Paul's not calling for some social revolution in this passage, but don't miss either how far-reaching this is. It's like what he wrote in Philippians 2. In humility, value others above yourselves. I want to show you a picture that just fascinated me this weekend. I came across it. This is from a high school football game in Iowa. The player on the ground is Carter Steinleg, who was playing defense. And in the fourth quarter, he said later he'd been trying to drink water all through the game and stay hydrated. But he went down in the fourth quarter with a terrible leg cramp. And if you play football or played football, you know what this feels like. The other guy you see standing there is Mario Hofer, a wide receiver. And after this play, he was running over to high-five his teammates, and he saw this opposing player go down on the far sideline. And instead of running to his teammates for the high-five, he rerouted, went over, and started to stretch out this guy's leg to alleviate the pain. And that's when a fan on the sidelines snapped this picture, and it's absolutely lit up social media. So what is it about this photo that makes it so special? It's a picture of empathy. When he was interviewed about it later, Mario, the wide receiver, was surprised by all the attention he was getting. He said, I was not expecting this to blow up. I just wanted to help him. Listen to this line. I knew how he felt, and I wasn't just about to leave him there. Honor one another above yourselves, even your opponent. Verse 11. Bear with me, it's fall, so I'm going to stick with football for a moment longer. Verse 11 says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. These three commands, you're going to see, are related. And let me put it in other words to you. Paul's saying, Don't be lazy in diligence, but be set on fire in the Spirit, serving the Lord. I find it's quite easy over time to become just kind of lazy and complacent about what is good and pleasing to God, the things Paul wrote of earlier. You know, our initial fervor in the faith might start to fade. We settle into inactivity. Paul knows this, and he's telling us that we as believers are designed to be diligent and disciplined. Students, maybe you have found your parents bugging you over the years about the amount of screen time that you get. How much TV you can watch, how much time on your phone or tablet or playing video games. I don't know all the ins and outs of your house, but I'm just guessing 
that your parents are not actually out to ruin your life. But that one of the reasons that they do this is to protect you from laziness. And I know that might seem odd right now. But I believe it's true and that one day it'll make a little bit more sense. I was struck by the faith maturity of a Becker football player this weekend. I was at the game on Friday in Becker against Hutchinson. Awesome game to watch. And Becker came out on top. By the way, it's the first time I've been to a football game in Becker. Do you know they sell pork chops there? How have I lived here 13 years and nobody's told me about the pork chops in Becker? I mean, I don't care if you even like football. Just go to Becker for the pork chops. They sold 400 pork chops on Friday, and they were sold out in the first quarter. It was unbelievable. So on my way into the game, I grabbed a program, and all the seniors were being featured on the inside of the program. And they were each sharing a favorite quote. And so I was reading through these little bio sketches. There were quotes from Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and Mike Tyson and other sports quotes. And then I came across this one senior, number 23, strong safety, whose favorite quote was Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And I'm thinking, that's cool. That's cool that a guy would put that in his senior program. But then I want you to see the connection now between faith and diligence. Because one of the other things that they could fill out was the best advice a coach ever gave you. And here's what he identified. You're not going to look back and regret working hard. You're not going to look back and regret working hard. That's great advice for football. It's even better advice for life and faith. Paul says, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Verse 12. You staying with me? Down the list we go. Also a trio that belongs together and our kids' blessing this morning. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now, whenever I see this verse, I am taken back to a day at the golf course, the Elk River Country Club for a Young Life tournament, and I was golfing with a guy named Peyton Holmes from this extended church family, and I saw this tattooed on the inside of Peyton's arm. And if you know Peyton, And if you know some of what his family has come through, then you know exactly why he has Romans 12.12 tattooed on his arm. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. I was at a YMCA Christian mission meeting earlier this week. It was down in Minneapolis. And it was a meeting of about eight leaders or so from across the Twin Cities YMCA I mean, the Y stretches from here to Hudson, from Rochester, all the way up to Forest Lake. And so here these eight leaders are coming together, desiring to live out the sea in the YMCA. And this meeting was at the Harold Mazell North Community Y, which is in the near north neighborhood. The executive director of that Y 
has been on the job for less than 90 days. She's a believer. Her name is Deanna. And so near the top of our agenda, we just spent time praying for Deanna, who was there with us. And I tell you what, you get people praying in the YMCA and watch out. I'm telling you, just watch what happens. Because the Y was birthed in prayer 176 years ago. And when the Y returns to that birthright, amazing things will happen. By the time we were done praying for Deanna, I could have gone home. I mean, meeting was done. I didn't need to see the rest of the agenda. I had goosebumps and was wiping tears from my eyes. Verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. I love this duo because it gives us very practical markers of what people should see in Christian community. Generosity and hospitality. Generosity is one of our financial principles here at the Y Church, and we get to put that into practice in our giving. And it's verses just like this one, I think of also Galatians 6.10, that led us to start what we now call the Financial Assistance Fund. So those are dollars that we set aside specifically to help out those among us who fall on hard times or who are facing unemployment or a financial hardship. And we started this in the COVID-19 shutdown in 2020, and we have carried it on. And it is an awesome thing to see in action. The other item on the list there is hospitality. In seminary in Germany, I lived in an apartment flat with six other guys. I don't know how we kept it clean. But one of those guys was a Russian-German named Aliek. And more than once, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd head down the hallway. We each had our own room off this main hallway. And I'd head down to the kitchen for breakfast. And off to the left, I'd look into the living room and there'd be some random person sleeping on our couch and it was because Aliek had invited them in off the street because they needed a place to stay for the night. After seminary, no surprise that Aliek and his wife, Lisa, an American, founded a ministry in Berlin called Batik, where people of any background could come in and experience Christian hospitality. And you know what was behind this for Aliek? Number one, he was following Jesus and he wanted to share his love with other people. Number two, Aliek knew what it was like to be an immigrant kid coming in, not even knowing where you were going to get your next meal. And that's what motivated him in this ministry. Aliek was one of the smartest people I have ever met. Speaking four languages fluently, he went on to Yale and now he's a distinguished professor of theology in Berlin. And one of the most humble people that you'll ever meet. Verse 14. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now just to clarify, Paul is not talking about the swear jar when he's talking about cursing. He's talking about the biblical idea of blessing and cursing. So when we're reading in the Old Testament, we see that to bless someone 
was to call on God to bestow his favor on them. And then to curse was to ask for the opposite. And that is to ask God to bring disaster or spiritual ruin on somebody. And we get to the New Testament and we meet Jesus. And now here with Paul, we are commanded a single-mindedness of love, even toward our enemies. And don't miss the weight of this. You know, verse to verse, we're moving along. But Tom Schreiner says, to bless those who persecute you is one of the most revolutionary statements of the New Testament. And, important for us, can only be carried out by the power of the Holy Spirit. You'll never pull this off on your own. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. The ability to rejoice and mourn with others is a very tangible indication, a measure of love. Unless we think that rejoicing is the easier of the two, I think we should probably pause a moment and think again. It can be especially difficult to rejoice with someone else who is rejoicing. I was at a cross-country meet on Friday after school, and I watched as a girl was leading her race, her age group, the whole way through. This was the one-mile event. And she's leading all the way. She's ahead by quite a bit, but she misses on a cross-country course. You know how this can happen. You're not on a track. She misses the last turn. She doesn't know it, but she is running off the course. Well, by the time the officials are yelling and the parents, and she gets turned back around, the girl who had been in second and a ways back overtook her and finished first. It is not always easy to rejoice with someone else who's rejoicing. When someone else gets pregnant and you have been struggling with infertility. When someone else gets the promotion that you have been wanting. When someone else wins the race. Envy is a powerful force, but genuine love knows how to rejoice and to mourn. Verse 16, Paul says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. I think it's safe to say that we are living in a time of disharmony. I was listening to a news editorial this week, and I don't know if they got it all right, but one thing was interesting, and that was identifying that this age of strong partisan politics actually has been around about 20 years, dates back about 20 years, and has been steadily getting worse ever since. And it maybe shouldn't surprise us that as our country as a whole moves further away from the things of Christ, that we will find less and less harmony. So in some sense, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. And I want you to imagine an orchestra where the woodwinds might decide that they don't actually need the brass section. I want you to imagine a first chair violinist who really just doesn't want to associate with anyone of lower position. 
Or imagine that the percussion section decides that they want to be the loudest instrument on the stage. If any of those things were true, you wouldn't have music worth listening to. You would have disunity. And that is what it feels like a bit in our country. And where it's going, and how this all plays out, I don't know. But the even more important thing, believe it or not, the more important thing is that right here in the family of Christ, we would have harmony. I have been so encouraged over these past couple of really crazy years that we have been able to navigate the pandemic and the politics together. You know, by God's grace is what we would have to say. We haven't done it perfectly, that's for sure. But we have done it together. And yet I know on any Sunday morning across the Y Church family that we have people who are all over the map when it comes to their own convictions or personal or political leanings. There's people probably, you know, at other tables that you wouldn't normally associate with or hang out with. And yet, here we are. God has put us in his family. And our unity in Christ is bigger than any difference that can ever come our way. Verse 17, you'll see, really builds on this. It says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Historians across the board say that it is pretty much unanimous that the greatest American president was Abraham Lincoln. There's really not a lot of debate about that in academic circles. And one of the things that fascinates me about Lincoln is how he made friends of his rivals. There's an old saying that goes like this, the best way to get rid of an enemy is to turn him into a friend. It's easier said than done, but Lincoln was known for this. This is the whole premise of the book Team of Rivals, by the way. In running for president, he ran against men like Seward, Bates, and Chase. He ran against them and they said really pretty terrible things about him as they campaigned against him. And yet when Lincoln won in an upset victory... He was gracious, and he appointed Seward, Bates, and Chase, his arch rivals, to his cabinet. May we once again see the spirit of Lincoln in our land. I shared last week, I've been reading this book called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, and in another quote this week she said, Our society seems to be losing the art of debate within friendships. And we instead surround ourselves with people who think like us. I want you to keep in mind as we think about this, as we think about unity, that the biblical mandate of like-mindedness does not mean that we must all think the same way. It's a very important distinction. It doesn't mean that we think the same way about every issue It's not so much that we think the same thing among each other, but that we think the same thing toward each other. And I know, I'll just tell you from my day-to-day work in pastoral ministry, that this COVID stuff has been hard on relationships. 
And I've been hearing more just even in the past few weeks of families, extended families, who are experiencing really intense disruption in their relationships because they're at odds over a difference of opinion. And I know these things are complex, and I don't mean to speak of them flippantly. But after hearing story after story, some you know from here in our church family, some from friends around the community, here is my pastoral counsel to you that it's just not worth it. As the movie North Country put it, it takes a lot of work to hate somebody. You ready to put in that kind of time? And I think this is the idea behind verse 18 when it says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's why I would say in those family dynamics, Keep the relationship as your highest value and figure out the rest later. It's just not worth being right even if you are. And then Paul adds in verse 19, we're coming into the home stretch here. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord quote from the Old Testament. A wonderful thing about following Jesus is that really this verse means the pressure is off about always having to be right or get even. We can just leave the final accounting up to God and he'll take care of it. That leads us to this interesting phrase in verse 20. The first line here will be very straightforward, but then this last part maybe catches your attention. It says, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And we think, yowza, that sounds painful. (laughs) And maybe that sounds vindictive. What's happening in this passage? What it actually means, this is a metaphor, a figure of speech, that means by treating your enemy kindly he may feel ashamed by his conduct, by how he is treating you or somebody else, and it may lead him to repentance. That's this idea of burning coals upon the head. It has to do with a sense of conviction that falls on us. And all this to say, all 23 verses of this passage, you made it. All of this to say, Paul concludes by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And if you have been discouraged by all of this division around us or maybe even in your own family, Paul brings a full circle here and he says, put it into action and overcome evil with good. Remember what he said, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, and now he closes the circle. And so I want to ask you, What is it from this list that you are going to circle for this week? I don't know about you, but I can't remember verses 9 through 21 and practice them all equally. But what's my message moment? What's the one thing on this list that God has impressed on your heart? Your spiritual assignment. 
Not play acting, but a spirit-led sincerity of love. And I want to show you how I rewrote our closing line from last week. Give your whole life over to God. Let God change you and use you to show the world his love. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we set aside this list now and just come to you in prayer, asking that you would put these things into action. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy that you have given us everything in Christ. And now as we've been instructed by your word this morning, Lord, we ask that our lives would simply be an overflow of your love. That you would teach us and lead us in ways that are uncommon in the world around us. Lord, for your purposes and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at theychurch.org.